0: This is the Intego Mac Podcast, the voice of Mac security for February 18th, 2021. Malicious website warnings on iOS get a boost in an upcoming update. Big Sur's updater is fixed. Malvertising plus activation lock on the iPad, iPhone and Mac. Now, here are the hosts of the Intego Mac Podcast, veteran Mac journalist Kirk McElhern and Intego's chief security analyst, Josh Long.
1: Good morning, Josh. How are you today? I'm doing well. How are you, Kirk? I'm doing quite well. Listen, I got an email the other day that surprised me. It says it's from Amazon. And it says that I purchased a 55-inch 4K smart OLED TV and a PlayStation 4 console, one terabyte slim edition. I thought the PlayStation 4 was hard to get, or is that the previous version? Hmm. So did you purchase these things or not? No, not at all. And obviously, it just looked to me like another scam email. But, you know, we've talked about many times, kind of phishing emails. Uh, you'll get something, it'll say, click here to check your account. And there are no clickable links on it. And I found this really surprising. What there is, however, is a phone number, very prominent, several times mentioned in the email. And Well, you don't see a phone number on any Amazon email. In fact, to get Amazon, here in the UK, Amazon calls you. You don't call them, but you have to go through the help center, get more help, contact us. It's like a multi-step process. They don't want people calling. So it looks to me like this is a new scam where they're sending out emails. They're telling people, oh, you've ordered this. Thank you for your order. We're currently processing your order. If you have any questions, call us. And people are going to call us and say, I never ordered that. Oh, well, what's your credit card number? We'll give you a refund. Mhm.
2: Exactly. Yeah, and and that's that's clearly what the point is here. The, so they've got somebody, you know, uh, at a at a phone bank answering calls that come into this number and that's exactly what they're doing is uh scamming you in a different way. So this is still a phishing email, but rather than your standard uh, phishing link Um, which, you know, is going to get blocked pretty quickly by uh, the, you know, Google safe browsing uh, and all that, you know, Google and and other companies quickly find uh, these phishing sites and they block them so that the standard browsers won't allow you to get to them. So this is a way around that and sure it requires um you know paying some people to answer phones so it might be a little bit more expensive to them but uh you know they're probably going to scam people out of a lot more money
1: well the thing about phishing and amazon if someone gets your account information they can't order something and ship it to a different address At least for me, if I'm adding a new address on my Amazon account, I have to put in, I think, the CVV, the three digits on the back of my credit card, again. So they would need the credit card information. What they can do, however, is buy gift cards, like iTunes gift cards and other company gift cards, or even Amazon gift cards, and send them to people. Whereas here, if they get your credit card number, they can do whatever they want with it. Yeah, that's interesting. And I suppose that they
2: could ask you for some of that additional information that they... Because when you do put in a new address. I've seen this before as well. Um, they always want to re-verify some things to make sure that you're not somebody else getting into your account and trying to send something. Yeah. So, um, but I suppose if you've got somebody on the phone who's really believing that you're an Amazon representative, they could probably trick you into giving them that kind of additional information that they might ask for.
1: Okay, so listeners, keep your eyes open if you do get one of these Amazon things. No, you didn't buy a 55-inch TV and a PlayStation. Um, If you see a phone number, avoid it. Now, you mentioned about the fact that there is like a database of phishing sites and they get blocked pretty quickly. Um, Apple just made a change to the way this works. So Apple has long worked with Google, which has a huge database of fraudulent websites. Um, Safari would maybe not always, but sometimes send data to Google about a website saying, is this website safe? Google would reply, yes or no. They've made a change and they're sending this through a proxy now. So uh, Google can't know where it's coming from. They can't know the IP address where it's coming from. Now, previously, Google didn't see the URL of the website. It was hashed. But now Apple is providing an extra layer of privacy on this.
2: Yeah, this is um, kind of interesting that Apple is doing this. And I, I am curious about uh, what level of partnership Apple has with Google on this whole process, or if Apple is just kind of doing this on their own and going to make Google the bad guy if they shut Apple's um, proxy down. Uh, Because what what Apple is doing here is they're purposely taking away some information that Google has been gathering on users, right? If you had uh, been visiting websites before, now, they did do some things to make it a little bit more private in terms of um, uh, if you try to go to a web page, that exact address of the page is not being sent to Google. It's sending a hash. Um, which theoretically makes it more secure because uh, it's a one-way hashing function, meaning that if you have the hash and you don't know what the original address was, you shouldn't be able to get that original address. Um, There, of course, are some ways that Google actually could get those addresses. Google has indexed every page on the internet, and so if they put it through the same hashing function, they can put together a database of, original URLs
1: and the hash that they could get from a user. So can you explain what hashing is? I'm sure we've mentioned this several times when we're talking about privacy in particular passwords.
2: Yeah, exactly. This comes up a lot with uh, when we're talking about passwords, because the proper way to store a password is to actually not store it at all. Um, When you um, put a password into a website What should be happening behind the scenes is that it gets converted into uh, a hash, and then that gets checked against what the company is actually saving. Um, They should never actually be saving your real password, just in plain text in a database. That's, That's not the proper way to do things, because then if somebody hacks the server, now they've without any effort on their part, they've just got this massive database of people's actual passwords. What should be happening is that those passwords should be hashed and salted. Um, The the hashing part of it basically just makes it uh, so that rather than having the original password, you know, let's say your password is something terrible. Hopefully it's not password one, two, three, (laughs) and then the at sign or something like that. But let's say that that's your password. That should never, ever actually exist on the company's servers. Um, you, they When you type that in, when you first create your account, when the website receives that from you, um, when it's saved onto the server, it's not actually saving the password. It's going to save a hashed version of the password. So it goes through a one-way hashing function, which turns it into something that you can't reverse. You can't get that and turn it back into the password.
1: Is this like just substituting letters for numbers and numbers for letters? Or is this more complicated mathematics?
2: No, it's, it's more complicated mathematics. And then there's an additional layer on top of this, which is um, salting. So it takes something that's unique to your user account, for example, and it also adds that into the hashing algorithm. So it makes it even more complicated and much more difficult if somebody uh, hacks the server Now, um, instead of just figuring out what the hash function is and then being able to use that to um, sort of brute force all of these uh, hashes to figure out what the algorithm was that they used, now the bad guy would have an even harder time if there was also salting involved. So. Salted hashed passwords is the right way to do passwords. Um, Theoretically, you wouldn't necessarily have to have any salting going on um, with the process of checking these URLs against Google's uh,
1: phishing database. Because they're not specific to a user, so you're not going to have any user-specific information. Right, right, exactly. And um, so
2: we know that Google could just as easily have a database, though, of all of these hashed addresses that anybody has ever visited or ever would be likely to visit. And if they can tie that to your IP address, then that theoretically
1: means that Google knows every site you're going to, even though they're using hashing. So for them to use this system to check these URLs, um, the hashing function has to be something that they know. So if Safari hashes the URL and send it to Google, Google has to have hashed the same URL and they're matching hashes, is that what it is? So they have to, right. they could easily make a database of correspondence between URLs and hashes. Right,
2: exactly. We're simplifying things a little bit here, but um, it, there is a little bit more to this process um, that uh, Google Safe Browsing uses, but, um, but Apple is taking this one step further by uh, having this new proxy in place that um, apparently is going to be coming in iOS 14.5. it's At least it's in the beta right now. So it looks like this is something that we will see in future versions of iOS and presumably macOS as well, where Apple is going to be the proxy so that your IP address is not getting logged by Google every time that you go to a website and it checks to see if it's a phishing site.
1: Okay, we have an update from last week's episode. We talked about a problem with the Big Sur installer, um, that there was a bug. It wasn't checking how much free space was available, and it could start the installation process, then fail, and you could lose data. Uh, Apple has released a new version of Big Sur 11.2.1, which correctly checks the free space on the disk and will now tell you if you're installing Big Sur if you have enough free space.
2: So the important thing to know here is that this is just a reissued update of 11.2.1. So if you've already installed 11.2.1, then uh, you won't get a new update. If you have not installed it yet, then it's best to download it fresh and uh, and then install it after that. Or, of course, you can just check to make sure you've got plenty of drive space available before you install And then you don't really have to worry about whether you got the patched version of the installer or not.
1: Right. I think it's something like 35 gigs that you need to have, um, which seems like a lot because it's the installer, it's the uncompressed installer, it's the new files, it's holding onto the old files until it's deleted. It does, it is a lot of space, isn't it?
2: Which is one of the reasons why we have Washing Machine X9, um, which is part of the Mac Premium bundle. That... Uh, software one of the things that it can do for you is it can make sure that you have plenty of free space available on your drive it We'll check a bunch of different areas of, of your drive to see if there's stuff that you can free up. You may have duplicate files. You may have um, caches and things like that that you don't need on your drive anymore. And so freeing up that space will make sure that you never run into an issue where you run out of disk space and can't install an update. <laughs> or if Apple ever makes this particular mistake again, then you won't have data being overwritten on your drive by your
1: macOS update. Unless you just have too much stuff on your drive. In this case, buy an external drive to put your extra stuff. I put my music on an external drive, and I've been doing this for years because I don't need to pay for, like, a 2-terabyte SSD in my iMac. You don't need fast storage for things like music or videos. Right. Yeah, it depends
2: on your use case. But, yeah, if you don't really want to have to plug in an external drive all the time when it, you know, maybe you use your laptop on the plane a lot and you don't want to uh, be like, do you remember those old commercials? uh Was it iBook? I think. Um, but they had a guy who would open up his, his Apple laptop on an airplane and he put down the tray tables of the two people next to him and he starts, like, spreading out all these, you know, things um, that are attached to his Mac. He's, like, uh, editing a home movie and all this stuff. It's really funny, actually, going back and looking at that commercial now, because, you know, Apple is is very much, like, focused on minimizing all the clutter and everything like that. But um, Plus,
1: we have cloud storage. So if you do have terabytes of files, you may keep them all in the cloud and just download what you need when you need it. Yeah, exactly. As long as you've got internet access when you're on your plane. Well, or before you get on the plane, you plan ahead. Okay, we're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about malvertising. We're going to talk about activation lock on the iPhone, iPad, and Mac, and some more.
0: Protecting your online security and privacy has never been more important than it is today. Intego has been proudly protecting Mac users since 1997, and our latest Mac protection suite includes the tools you need to stay protected in 2021. Intego's Mac Premium Bundle X9 includes Virus Barrier, the world's best Mac anti-malware protection, Net Barrier, powerful inbound and outbound firewall security, personal backup to keep your important files safe from ransomware, and much more to help protect, secure, and organize your Mac. Best of all, it's compatible with macOS Big Sur and the latest Apple Silicon Macs. Download the free trial of Mac Premium Bundle X9 from Intigo.com today. When you're ready to buy, Intego Mac Podcast listeners can get a special discount by using the link in this episode's show notes at podcast.intego.com. That's podcast.intego.com. And click on this episode to find the special discount link exclusively for Intego Mac podcast listeners. Intego, world-class protection and utility software for Mac users made by the Mac security experts.
1: Okay. During the break, we looked up the commercial that Josh mentioned. We found it's an Apple iBook commercial from around 2000. I'll put a link in the show notes. It kind of looks like the Apple user's a jerk taking up three seats on the airplane with all his devices plugged in. And even, I mean, can you check that much stuff on an airplane these days? Yeah, it,
2: it's, it's a pretty interesting ad because this is sort of the opposite of what uh, Apple generally tries to project, right? Like, first of all, the guy looks like a total jerk because he doesn't even ask before he puts the people's tray tables down next to him and then he just spreads out all of his stuff which makes it look like you need a whole bunch of extra peripherals and stuff if you're using a mac so it's sort of a weird ad um but it's it's interesting to go back and take a look at it
1: what i find interesting is we're 20 years later and you can do all that with an ipad yeah exactly you don't need to spread out all your stuff all over the place anymore no Okay. Malvertising. I like that name, malvertising. It's a great word. Um, A malvertiser abused WebKit zero data redirect iOS and macOS users to shady sites. This isn't technically malware. It's just kind of hijacking you. It's it's adware, right? Well, yeah. Basically, what what they're doing is they're exploiting
2: some what had been zero-day vulnerabilities, uh, Apple has patched these vulnerabilities. So as long as you've got the latest version of iOS or macOS that we talked about earlier this month, um, you are already safe from these particular vulnerabilities. But um, they, uh, the way this is described is there was a, a, a quirk in how the WebKit browser engine handles JavaScript event listeners and so exploiting that quirk, that's how these uh, malicious ads were able to um, redirect users to some shady uh, domains that had like gift card scams um, and a variety of other similar things. Uh, they have a couple screenshots in this article that we'll link to. Um, one of them says, uh, you know it redirects to a site that pretends to be a visa site." that tells you, congratulations, celebrating our sponsor's 15 birth- 15th birthday. We randomly selected a few Visa users from the United States. Visa user, actually, it says, <laughs> to receive one special gift card. And there's another one that pretends to be uh, YouTube. It says, dear Google user, congratulations, Google user. Every Monday, we randomly select a few lucky users, and, st- and today <laughs> it's you. You're going to get a $1,000 Walmart gift card, because Walmart and Google, I don't... I don't know. I don't see the connection there, but um, these are the kinds of scams that um, you see a lot. Uh, I, I've certainly seen these a lot when I've looked for uh, looked through Google search results. Um, and if you see some kind of sketchy results or kind of things that you kind of wonder if that's really a web page with information that you're looking for, and you click through, you'll often see these kind of scams. Now, I do want to mention that. Although this has only been noticed as something that is being used for redirecting to these scam pages, um, it is possible that depending on what browser you're using um, or what platform you're using, whether it's Mac or iOS, that it may potentially decide to redirect malware. Also, they can change these campaigns at any moment. And I have seen this in the past where... Uh, campaigns that on one platform or in one browser will choose to um, to show an advertisement or a scam in other browsers or on other platforms they'll actually offer you malware. So you know I, I've seen this with uh, pages that, um, for example, if they offer you an exe malware on Windows, they might just out of convenience offer you something. Uh, like a scam page, if you're on any other platform, if they weren't particularly developing malware for other platforms. So this is something to be aware of. Um, Although we don't know that there's any malware associated with this particular campaign, it's still something you should be very careful about. And so you do want to make sure that you've got all your devices updated to the latest operating systems.
1: Okay. I spotted an article on the BBC News website, which I find it kind of interesting that they're writing that spy pixels in emails have become endemic. I remember when the, um, what did they call them? Invisible pixels uh, in emails came out, maybe 20 years ago. And essentially, uh, these pixels would have enough information that a, a sender could know if you had opened an email because when you open the email, the the your email client would try to display this image. It was invisible. You wouldn't see it. Uh, in doing so, it would make a request at a server, which would be unique to your email address, to particularly this specific email. So they could tell when the email is opened, how many times, uh and they'd find a lot of information, the same as you can get from someone's web browser. This isn't new, um, but maybe the fact that the BBC is talking about this now is because we're more aware of the privacy issues. Now, I'll be honest, I don't consider this a big privacy issue personally. I kind of accept that in exchange for marketing emails that companies are going to want to get statistics. I mean, it it just seems normal to me. It's worth pointing out that, you know, we've talked about ad blockers and tracker blockers and they work uh, in web browsers, but they don't work for the entire operating system. So your email client... You may have a tracker blocker in your web browser, but it won't work on your email client. Right, and that's a good point. I, I think there's a couple of things I
2: wanted to point out here. So one is that um, also they can get your your IP address of whatever device you're using or your home network if you're at home, um, and 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 that would be linked to your email address. So that's pretty personal information. There's not necessarily a whole lot that somebody can do um, with your IP address other than know exactly where you are, what your internet service provider is, and, and some things like that.
1: So one thing to note is if you do have a tracker blocker and you use webmail, uh, then this pixel won't get loaded, right? It depends on whether your
2: web browser's ad blocker knows about that particular pixel. But it's certainly possible that, uh, you know, anybody can... Put up any particular image uh, on their own web server, they could do something a little different so that it won't happen to get picked up by the common uh, ad blocker filters. Another thing that I think is really interesting here is that Google G- with Gmail, when it first launched, they were more privacy conscious when it comes to, to things like this. They would block images by default if they came from a web server. So if it was embedded in the email, it would load. I mean, it still does by by default. Um, But if uh, if the image was actually hosted on a web server, then it would not automatically load in your email. Um, And you would have to click a button to display images. Well, Google changed the default um, several years ago. It looks like it was apparently December 2013, based on some uh, article that we, we looked up. And so now the default is that it will display images, even if they're located on a third party web server, they will load them by default. So you, so if you're a Gmail user and you use web-based Gmail, uh, you'll want to make sure to go into your settings and, and look for that option because... Um, I, this is something you want to disable because of privacy reasons. You, d- you don't want necessarily for everybody to know that you've seen this email. One of the things that can happen if they know that you've seen the email is it validates that your email address is correct. Right. And so you don't want them to know that you're actually seeing the email because it, it, it validates that the email address is legit and that you actually opened it.
1: Okay, if you use mail on macOS, you can go to mail preferences, viewing, and you can uncheck load remote content and messages. On iOS, it's similar, settings, mail, load remote images. Now, I keep it off on my uh, iPhone because if I'm out, I don't want to be using data uh, and slowing down things, but I leave it on on my Mac because it's just too much of a hassle. I get too many messages that do have images, and I do want to see them. I just leave it off all the time. (laughs) I'm not surprised you would do that. Okay, activation lock. Activation lock is the thing um, that if you've reported a device is lost or stolen, it'll be locked so the thief can't use it. But sometimes you may accidentally do this, like, let's say you've lost your iPhone and you've... Reported it as stolen and Find My iPhone and you found it. We're we're not sure how this worked. We think that for businesses and organizations, there was a way that they could contact Apple to get activation lock turned off on devices. But Apple has recently launched a new web portal where you can ask to have the activation lock turned off on your device. And this is for um, iPhones, uh, iPads, Macs, and Apple Watches. Now, you have to provide proof of ownership, which must include the product serial number, IMEI or MEID. If you've got an invoice from Apple for a product, it will not have a serial number. However, if you've been logged into that product and it's in the list of your iCloud devices, uh, if you look in the preferences on Mac or the settings on iOS, you will see the serial numbers for the devices. I've never written down an IMEI or MEID. I know the IMEI is what my phone company asks each year when I get a new Apple Watch and want to have a contract on it, but there's no way that I would copy that information. What Apple says is your data on the device will be erased uh, and your device must not be in lost mode. So again, if you've lost something and then found it, you need to go in to find my whatever device and turn off lost mode before you contact Apple. Now, interestingly, they say that this that either Apple or an Apple-affiliated company will process your activation lock support request. Yeah, that, that is kind of interesting that it could be a third-party
2: company that might be helping you with this. But um, I, I do think it's good that that Apple has uh, a portal that's available to everybody now. Now, you'll see some headlines related to this story that will be a bit misleading, uh, that will say, you know, Apple launches a way to circumvent activation lock uh, and, and so if you just see the headline, you might think, oh shoot, that means if somebody steals my iPhone, now they can just break into it through some Apple sanctioned means. And it's, it's not that, um, basically you do still have to prove that you're the owner of the device. Apple's just making it a little bit easier for you to get in um, to your own device if you can prove that you actually do own it. Um, So this is a good thing. It's not something to be too concerned about, um, but uh, it's it's nice that Apple is uh, making this a little bit easier process for people.
1: If you're particularly concerned about saving this information, on an iOS device, go to Settings General About and just take screenshots. You'll get all the information, model number, serial number, uh, then, if you scroll down, you get the Wi Fi address, Bluetooth address, and all these the IMEI, ICCID, MEID, EID, SEID. Um, these are like, wow, the SEID is so long, it's on one line. It must be like 40 characters. It's really tiny. But you can make screenshots if you're really worried about losing a device. You can also usually find this too. If you log into your cellular
2: provider uh, account, you can usually find your IMEI uh, numbers there as well. So um, that's another way you can get to it if you
1: don't have this saved somewhere. Do you know what IMEI means? Uh, Off the top of my head, I do not. It's International Mobile Equipment Identity. It is a unique identifier that each mobile device has this particular number and that It's all different for every device. It's just a way of identifying. It's one of the many ways of identifying. We have that, we have the Mac address, and then all those other ID numbers that we mentioned as well. There you go, IMEI. All right, one last thing. Microsoft is adding a kids mode to their Edge browser. We talked about Edge last week um, because Josh had adopted Edge instead of Chrome. Um, I went and adopted Edge instead of Chrome. I deleted Chrome and everything to do with Chrome. And I've been using Edge. And it seems to work okay. It seems to work on a particular website that I use that requires Chrome. It doesn't work with Safari. And I guess this is a good compromise when I need to use something that Safari won't support. So this is new um, kids mode. What does this do? Well, what Microsoft
2: is doing here is that uh they're they're adding some features to make this uh make the browser experience a little bit more kid-friendly and what that what this means is that they have some custom themes with um child-friendly content that will be available on the new new tab page. Um they say that uh it also includes some uh some new security and privacy features uh like tracking prevention uh, and, and so forth. They also automatically enable safe search in B- uh, the Bing search engine, which is the default search engine, of course, because it's Microsoft search engine and Microsoft's browser. Bing safe search filters out um, you know, adult content, or at least it attempts to. It sounds like a pretty good thing, um, you can uh, you can take advantage of this feature pretty soon. It's not really widely available in the standard version of Edge just yet, but uh, it is coming soon. You can test it in the dev channel pretty soon. Uh, if you use Chrome Canary like I do, um, th- which is the bleeding edge version that I don't recommend that everyone use. But if you want to try it out, you can download Edge Canary and try out kids mode now. Just a quick note before we wrap up here. After we finished recording, there was an announcement about some new Mac malware that is specifically designed to run on M1 Macs, which is the first of its kind. Now this is a variant of the existing Pirate malware that we've seen before. And I just wanted to make sure that you guys know that Intego already detects this malware because it's a a variant of some existing pirate malware. Our existing signatures already protect you against this. So we'll talk more about that malware on next week's episode of the podcast. Okay, that's enough for this week. Until
1: next week, Josh, stay secure. All right, stay secure.
0: Thanks for listening to the Intego Mac Podcast, the voice of Mac security with your hosts, Kirk McElhern and Josh Long. To get every weekly episode, be sure to subscribe in Apple Podcasts or in your favorite podcast app. And if you'd be so kind, leave a rating, a like, or a review. Links to topics and information mentioned in the podcast can be found in the show notes for the episode at podcast.intego.com.